You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. We're really encouraging borrowers to go to that full electronic signature route. You can kind of close in your pajamas if you really want to. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Stan Holland. He is from a company called Atlantic Bay Mortgage, and we're going to be talking about some of the really interesting adjustments they've had to make with COVID-19. So be sure you stick around for that. All right, let's uh, jump right in with our stories here this week. Joe, why don't you start things off for us? Sure. My story comes from Sergio Gatlin. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He is a writer with Bleeping Computer, and he has an article on Bleeping Computer talking about extortionists who are threatening to destroy sites in fake ransom attacks. Hmm. So we're all familiar with ransomware, right? Right. And you have to go through all the trouble of getting someone to click on a link and then actually getting the software, the toolkit to to run the software, and that costs money. Well, these guys are looking for a way just to get the money out of the victim without investing <laughs> anything other than sending an email. They're cutting out the middleman. <laughs> cutting out the middleman. That's right, Dave. And uh, what they're doing is they're targeting websites and they're blackmailing them. And they say, if you don't pay us a ransom between $1,500 and $3,000, of course, that money's going to be in Bitcoin. We're going to leak your database because uh, we've already got it. They don't have it, but they say they do. They also make some fake technical claims about how they've exfiltrated the database to their own servers and how they use credential harvesting software to exploit a vulnerability found in the site software. It's all completely lies. Then the next thing they threaten is they say, we're going to use uh, malicious search engine optimization to push your results down in Google searches or in Bing searches, right? So Hmm. there are companies out there that do search engine optimization because the search engine algorithms, while they're protected, they're still really just functions, right? So I can probe a function and see what gets something higher up on the list, and I can I can run a bunch of tests, and then I can offer that as a service to people. Presumably, you can also offer uh, a service to push people down in the search results list. In fact, there hmm. are even businesses that do that, that they want to push your negative results down. But they're threatening to use that as a means of getting you out of the first page of results. They're not going to do it. I doubt that they have the the capability to do it. There are people out there that have the capability of doing it, but that takes a lot of effort. If you pay them the $1,500 to $3,000, they're going to lay off. That's the whole thing. There's a letter in here that Sergio has included here, and and it's pretty good. It's got very good grammar. It says, we have hacked your website, and it has website URL, and extracted your database. How did this happen? Our team found a vulnerability within your site that we were able to exploit. After finding the vulnerability, we were able to get your database credentials and extract your entire database and move the information to an offshore server. What does this mean? We will systematically go through a series of steps of totally damaging your reputation. And this this letter goes on until you get to the point where it says, how will I stop this? Uh, We're willing to refrain from this if you just send us money. It's a complete scam. Don't pay the ransom. This is something that's being sent to all these website administrators. Now, if you think about the development of websites recently, now there are toolkits out there that you can just go out and start up a website and have it looking really good. This has all been automated to the point where you really don't need web development anymore. And these types of websites are are database-driven. Yes, they're all database-driven on the back end. 
So imagine you're somebody who has a small business, right? Or a medium-sized business. You don't have the money to have somebody run your own website. So you set up a website using one of these services. And then you get this email. You're like, wait, how did they do this? How did they get in there? You're not really a technical expert. You don't understand what they mean by they found a vulnerability. This is kind of overwhelming people with information they don't understand and just threatening them and trying to shake some money out of them. It's a lot like the sextortion scams that we've seen in the past you know, where they say they've got video of you while you're watching uh, pornography on your on your computer and right. they want you to send money to not expose that. This is kind of the same thing and it kind of requires the same level of sophistication. All I need is a list of email addresses of people that have websites and I can usually get that off the website itself. So I can write a web scraper that goes out and gets the information and then another script that sends us email and step three is profit, right? Yeah, it's kind of a, uh, like almost like an online protection racket. Like, uh, you know, a nice website you got here. Be a shame <laughs> if anything would have happened to it. <laughs> exactly. <You know? laughs> Moose and Rocco are coming around to help you out. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, help the judge find his wallet. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm glad you got the reference, Dave. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, so any recommendations for folks to protect themselves from this? I guess just awareness that it's a thing and ignore it. Yeah. Be aware and don't pay the ransom. Yeah. That's, that's it. You know, just don't just understand this is probably a scam and, or in all likelihood it's a scam, you know, especially if you have a a computer or or website rather that doesn't really have a lot of customer information on it. It's just a promotional website for you. Don't worry about it. You're fine. Yeah. I suppose all the old rules apply too. If you know, don't, don't reuse passwords, use a unique, strong password on your website. And if they offer it, use uh, multi-factor authentication. Absolutely. Everywhere you can use multi-factor authentication. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yep. All right, it's a good story. Uh, my story this week uh, comes from Motherboard uh, over at Vice. It's written by Joseph Cox, and uh, the, it's titled How I Accidentally Hijacked Someone's WhatsApp. Uh, before we dig into this, Joe, are you a WhatsApp user? I am not a WhatsApp user. Um, Me neither. Yeah, that's part <laughs> of the Facebook family. Yeah, so. yeah. I don't even know if I have it on my phone here. So, uh, well, that makes us the perfect people to talk about this issue. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but fortunately, uh, Joseph Cox has uh, laid it all out here. Of course, he's a reporter at Motherboard, and he was going uh, through the process of reporting on a story, and he needed a fresh phone number. Sounds like he maybe he was talking to a, a source or something like that, and he needed a, a, a new phone number, something different than the one he uses day to day. So he bought himself a pay-as-you-go SIM card. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the SIM card is the thing you put in your phone, and that really establishes the identification of that phone with the mobile service provider. Right. It is the thing your phone number is assigned to, is that SIM card. Uh, so he bought a pay-as-you-go uh, SIM card, installed WhatsApp, and uh, right away noticed that he was starting to get messages on WhatsApp from people he did not know. Huh. He was uh, uh, evidently the member of some groups of people that he did not know. Uh, as a little side uh, note, uh, the messages in the groups were coming through in Spanish, uh, which I don't suspect is Joseph's uh, primary language. Right. But, uh, who knows? And what it comes down to is the fact that WhatsApp uses your phone number as your primary source of identification on their service, on their network. He had gotten this SIM card that was assigned a phone number, and it was a phone number that had been recycled. Someone else had had this phone number before. Right. And so when he put this uh, in his phone, whoever had had that phone number before didn't have multi-factor authentication on their WhatsApp account. So when he logged in with this phone number, WhatsApp said, ah, 
welcome back. <laughs> right, right. And even if he did, even if the guy did have SMS two-factor authentication, that text message would have come right to his phone. Yeah, yeah, right? that's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting uh, look inside this whole thing of phone number reuse. I mean, I, I was thinking about how, you know, when, when you and I were kids growing up back in the, the good old days of landlines, yes. you know, pretty much my, my entire family shared one phone number. You know, right. That was our home phone number. If you wanted to call me or my sister or my brother or my dad or my mom, you called that number. Right. Well, these days, everybody has a, their own phone number, and it's likely you have more than one. Yes. For a variety of reasons. Uh, we have phone numbers. Uh, we have, well, we used to have fax numbers. I suppose people, some people still have those. Um, people have individual numbers at their desks at work. So my point is that we have used up a whole lot of phone numbers, and uh, because of that, those phone numbers get churned, get reused a lot more quickly than they would have in the past. That's correct. WhatsApp says that if an account has been unused for 45 days and then becomes reactivated on a different mobile device, they're going to take that as a sign that the phone number has been recycled and they'll reset the account. I'll bet these phone numbers churn faster than 45 days. I'll bet that within a, within a couple of days of a phone number becoming an unused phone number, that phone number is available to anybody to assign to a new phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, there's memes about this, right? You know, new right. number, who this, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it seems like in this case, that's what happened. And I suppose the folks who are out there selling burner sims, just stuff for quick reuse, disposable phone numbers. Mm-hmm. You're right. I suspect they get churned really quickly. Right, yeah. So, uh, again, the recommendations are make sure that uh, you're using multi-factor on an app like WhatsApp, which I do believe they allow. Right. Um, I believe they can. Uh, requ- you can also require a PIN uh, with WhatsApp. So, yeah, enable those uh, extra bits of uh, security so that if you get a new phone number, let's say someone comes along and gets your old phone number, they don't have access to all of your WhatsApp information or any other app that used your phone number as its primary source of, of identification. Yeah, well, there's got to be some other means of identification in WhatsApp because it's got end-to-end encryption, right? So it has to have some kind of private keys. And if I get a new phone number, then WhatsApp maybe has the public key. They should be able to tell that I don't have the private key, Yeah. right? But yeah. then, the, then the problem becomes how do you move – let's say I'm a user who just gets a new phone, right? Well, like we all do every three to four years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we get new phones. How do I move the private key – uh, from the old phone to the new phone. Yeah. And because then I don't want to be locked out of my messages and I don't want to lose everything that's happening. It's an interesting problem, but I, I'm I'm almost positive there is, in fact, I am positive, there is a technological solution to this that WhatsApp has just missed on this. They could be doing a better job here. Well, it's interesting too because, uh, you know, the Signal app, which is a very well-known app for texting and you can do phone calls and uh, video chats and so on. And its claim to fame is that it is both open source and end-to-end encrypted so that right. anybody can look at the code to verify that it's good stuff and also everything you do on it is encrypted end-to-end. But famously, in the past few weeks, Signal has said that they're going to make it possible that you don't need a phone number in order to sign up for a Signal account. So they were tying the accounts to phone numbers as well. Yes, it seems that way. Now they're making the change where you can uh, – apparently you can not do that. I don't use Signal either. Uh, so yeah. I don't know how this how this works. I the one the one I do use I do have on my phone is Telegram, and that one seems to mm. also do phone number identification because I get notifications when someone who's in my contact lists 
opens or installs Telegram and starts using it. I say, I get like, hey, uh, Dave Bittner is now on Telegram. Yeah, and I get the same thing on Signal. I have Signal on my phone and uh, it does the same thing. Anytime somebody new who's in my contact list joins, I get a notice about it. Yeah. So I I suppose, I mean, the the big story here, the long-term thing is I suppose it's good to decouple these apps from something like a phone number, something that's not permanent, (laughs) like a phone number, I suppose it's a good thing to at least have the option to not have it tied to that. Yes, absolutely. I would agree. All right. Well, that story, again, comes from uh, Motherboard. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, as we do with all of our stories. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from Twitter user named Julia Giddens. Uh, Her Twitter handle is at D-E-S-L-Y-S-4444. Uh, And this is a notice that came from British Gas, uh, which sounds like something that you get when you're eating uh, British food. But no, it is actually the the company that provides uh, natural gas to customers in Britain. And of course, uh, Joe, because this comes from overseas, what does that mean? Uh, Accents, Dave. The master of dialects, (laughs) Mr. Bittner, is uh, is going to delight us with his British accent. All right, here we go. A message from British Gas. Your bill is still overdue and needs paying. Hello, we sent you a gas bill for £21.71, and we still haven't received payment. If you've paid it in the past five days, please ignore this email. To see if your payment is cleared, you can check your account. Next steps. If we do not receive a payment or hear from you in the next two days, and we have to contact you again, you will be charged £140 to cover our reasonable costs. If we have to visit your property to connect this debt, you will be charged £540. If the debt remains unpaid, we plan to obtain a court warrant to visit your home and either replace your gas meter with a pay-as-you-go meter or disconnect your gas supply. This could result in additional charges of up to £402. If your gas supply is disconnected, we will charge you £750 to reconnect your supply. Pay us online now. <laughs> That's terrifying, isn't it? They're trying to scare us <laughs> up. I love the check your account here. The, the, um, it's got a couple of links. I don't know where those links go because Julia, being very smart, just sent a picture of this message. She didn't actually mm-hmm. copy the text of the message and let everybody else click on the links. But yeah, I mean, here it's got everything, right? It's got we're the gas company, and we're going, and you still owe us twenty one bucks. Uh, by the way, if if we have to call you again, it's going to cost you one hundred forty pounds. That's right. reasonable cost for a phone call, right? <laughs> I don't think attorneys will charge you that much for a phone call, um, or, ba- or barristers, as the case right, may be. Barristers, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they're ratcheting up. They're demanding a response. If you if you dilly dally, the price does nothing but go up. That's right. I love the idea of a pay as you go gas meter. I've never heard of such a thing, but I can imagine how that works. You know, <laughs> I'm cold. Got to go outside and swipe the credit card or, gas meter. Right, or, sit, or pump quarters into it. Or, <laughs> right, or, <pump> <laughs> <laughs> Honey, go out and feed the meter. Oh, right, it's yeah, your turn. No. Meter, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I suspect the, the link to check your account, I mean, that quite likely would be something where they're trying to harvest your credentials. Yeah. This is a phishing um, yeah, and then the pay us online now, again, perhaps they try to get you to log in, but then also try to grab your, your credit card or something like that to steal right. money from you outright. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. 
British Gas actually did respond to this uh, this tweet from Julia and says, hmm. hi, Julia, you are indeed correct. This is a scam. And they've seen a lot of these going around. Uh, and they asked for Julia to forward the email to them to their phishing team and provided an email address, uh, hmm. which Julia says she did. So good on British Gas for for keeping an eye on this. Of course, Julia did tag British Gas in the in the post. So that's probably what alerted them to the scam. But Dave, a quick Google search uh, over here in uh, in Kerrigan Technology Headquarters uh, has found <laughs> that there is such a thing as a pay-as-you-go gas meter, that that is a really? real thing. Yeah. Huh. I was dubious, and you and I were dubious, but they have them. Huh. Well, and I suppose, uh, I mean, it sounds like they're they're unpopular enough that the threat, the specter of having one installed is a, is a call to action of its own. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and these guys are terrible people. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Julia Giddens for uh, sharing that and uh, sending it our way. That is our catch of the day. Joe, I had the pleasure of uh, speaking with Stan Holland recently. Uh, He is from a company called Atlantic Bay Mortgage. Uh, And I wanted to talk to him because a mortgage company is a company that deals with a lot of important documents. Yes. Uh, And a lot of money changes hand and a lot of money flows through an organization like that. So, you know, they have a pretty big target on their back when it comes to people trying to scam them. And we've certainly covered stories about those kinds of things here on this show. Uh, So I wanted to touch base with Stan about some of the things that they're doing uh, in this shift to have more things happen online and remotely, especially as we're in the midst of COVID-19. Here's my conversation with Stan Holland. We're focused very much on securing, you know, our environment, anything that our borrowers are interacting with. There are certainly times when, you know, borrowers choose to take, you know, actions that aren't always the most secure, but anything that we're doing or asking them to do is incredibly secure. And, you know, we try to find ways to do that. The good news is that over the past probably two to five years, we've seen a real tremendous increase in the amount of digitization in the mortgage industry, everything from your initial application all the way through even your closing documents at this point can all be done electronically. We're trying to do that. Consumers are slowly kind of moving into that direction. Obviously, the current situation with the virus has made that a little bit more appealing because, you know, you don't necessarily want to come in contact with a lot of people. The electronic interactions, they certainly present a new set of challenges in terms of safety. Well, it's actually pretty typical, I think, in terms of vulnerabilities that we have in the industry is what we call the title work. You know, when when you go to send the wire to fund the loan, which is kind of the biggest money part of the transaction, hackers and everyone else have zeroed in on that um, and are really getting good at spoofing emails and trying to get wiring instructions that will go into their account instead of into the account of the escrow person. That wouldn't be held against the borrower. You know, we would be the ones on the hook for that. Um, But that's certainly a big trend in the industry um, and kind of one of the ways hackers are attacking us. We get thousands of attacks, you know, in different ways, but that's the one that has been successful in the industry a couple of times um, and really kind of hurt people quite a bit because you're talking about a couple hundred thousand or more and losses just from one email Can you take us through some of those scams, some of the ways that uh, folks try to weasel their way into a mortgage transaction? It's similar to the financial industry. So anytime they can see that you've applied for a loan or if you actually get a loan, you know, it becomes public record in most states. So once it becomes public record, you're kind of put on a whole bunch of lists um, and we don't do that. We actually send out a letter after the loan is closed just to warn people about all the scams that they're going to see once they close because the number of things they get in the mail is just astounding. So People will try to like, you know, copy our name since we're the one to the borrowers making their payment to. They'll try to copy our name on the outside of the envelope or make it seem like us so that people open it. 
you know, there's all kinds of different tactics that are being used, um, mostly through the mail, some through email as well. You know, we do electronic payments for servicing, you know, when the borrower's making their payment after the after they close the loan. And in those cases, we're seeing some spoofing and other things like that. For the most part, though, it really happens during the transaction. And that's when the, we're certainly the most vulnerable from a data perspective um, is during the transaction because there's so much information like you said, flying back and forth between us and the, and the borrower, you really have to create a very safe environment, you know, to make that work well. That that's really the by far the most dangerous part. And so, what kind of tools do you all put in place to make sure that 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 safety is there? Well, good question, and it's kind of changed a little bit, not a lot, a little bit since you know all of the virus stuff kicked in. But so we went, you know, remote, which kind of creates its own set of problems or of, of challenges. We kind of focus on it in three different ways. One is really in the tech. Space. The second is in the process space. So we view those two areas as spaces that we're responsible as a company to make sure that the mortgage banker or our client or whoever's interacting with our system, employee, any anyone, partner, that they have the most sort of secure environment they can. So we have a, we have a lot of different tools that we use. We have everything from securing our AWS and Azure environments. We use all kinds of different tools with filtering, you know, down to the actual client level. So we're using Cisco Umbrella, you know, to filter things um, on the client level in terms of, you know, trying to get down to that that actual web filtering um, for whoever's using the computer. We really like this new product on the on the email side, and that seems to be one of the vulnerabilities that's really hard to fix from a people perspective. We've really enjoyed using Barracuda Sentinel, um, where it's got AI baked into it, and it's trying to find, you know, emails that may not have been written in the same style, et cetera, and trying to find the style that you write in it and trying to find emails that may not be We've actually found a few and prevented a few that were incredibly close to being clicked on, but the system was able to find them and people would, would have definitely clicked on it if they had seen them. So there's a host of tools. That, there's a m- bunch of other names I have here of, of tools that we use. But, you know, there's a difference, obviously, securing our environment when people are working on site is kind of a different conversation to some extent than securing our environment once you kind of distribute it to 700 people's homes. You know, it's quite a bit different in terms of scope. And certainly, as you've been talking about on your show recently, from what I've listened to, yeah, I think I think your phrasing is it increases how many different places can be attacked or the vulnerability. Yeah, we often talk about the surface area. Yeah, surface area, exactly. Yeah. How do you balance the need for security with not being weighed down in in so many steps that it just becomes a burden to be able to just get the business done? It's hard. It's all about finding the smart tools. You know, we definitely try to find really smart tools that are going to you know, sort of be worth it. Um, one of the things I ask a lot, and it's probably, you know, not a great phrase in today's world, but sort of, is it worth it? You know, is the juice worth the squeeze is what I say, but is it, is it worth the effort? So some of the tools that, you know, you look at, that sounds great until you actually put them into practice and they really don't make that much of a difference when you look at control monitoring reports or whatever. Um, and then other tools you don't have high hopes for and you put them in place and it really, you know, they really do a lot. So we always try to weigh the sort of the security gains against the process losses. And thus far, we feel like we've reached a decent level with that. We're probably leaning a little bit more towards the conservative side of that just to really be protecting everyone's data. And we take that responsibility very seriously because we do get almost everything except for a blood sample and, you know, a urine sample, or whatever to get alone. I mean, at this point, we, <laughs> you know, we ask for almost everything else. So, is securing that data is, is our number one concern once it gets in our environment. And how do you deal with the challenge that we're facing now where people don't necessarily want to be to get together face to face? How do you how can you verify things when you can't have those face to face meetings? We've had to get creative on the application side. Of course we allow bars to like take a picture of their 
license or whatever, but we still are trying to do Zoom or Zoom style, you know, still in the blank of all the different video conferencing systems people use, but Zoom style interactions. We've seen a real uptick in Zoom and other types of video conferencing for closings as well, because you can sign all the documents electronically now. Um, we're really encouraging borrowers to go to that full electronic signature route. You can kind of close in your pajamas if you really want to. And uh, there's no reason not to, but a lot of people still like the idea of going to a place to close a loan and, you know, meeting an attorney and all that kind of stuff, which I, I totally understand. It's a big, as you said, it's a huge transaction and probably one of the largest transactions in most borrowers' lives. So um, they want to, you know, want to have somebody there. In this point in time, though, we can still be there virtually with the person and kind of talking them through everything. Um, and letting them ask whatever questions they have without having to physically be near them when they can be at home, you know, in front of their computer and signing the documents as we go. So, yeah, e-mortgages have been around since 2000, but they really haven't caught on yet. And we're very much hoping that this situation helps really spur the adoption of e-mortgages because it'll, it'll help the industry and our consumers and bring down costs for consumers as well. What are your recommendations for someone who is heading down this path? They're, they're, they're getting ready to, to either get a new mortgage or refinance or something like that. What are some of the things they can do in preparation mm-hmm. to make sure that they're going to be doing it in a safe and secure way? The first thing to do is, is to not just accept your mother's brother's sister's referral to John Smith or whoever who's a random mortgage person you really want to kind of do a little bit of research online ahead of time and figure out what you're looking for, which most consumers do nowadays. It depends on what you're looking for. You know, if you're looking for an all electronic experience or different places to go, if you're looking for sort of a hybrid where you have people who can guide you, but you still want electronic interaction, a place like us, you know, we kind of do both. Um, And then some people are, you know, don't have a lot of technology. So you kind of want to know what you're getting into because you are getting into a 30 or 45 day process with a company and you're going to probably talk to them at least once a week. Realistically, you're going to send, you know, 30 plus documents to them before it's all said and done or something like that. You're going to sign a mm-hmm. ton of documents. So it's, it's really important that you, you know, you kind of know who you're getting into the relationship with. People shop mostly on price, which is obviously a very important thing because you're paying that mortgage for a long, long time. But I would just encourage people, there's more to price when you're thinking about shopping for a mortgage. I would look at the tools that people offer, the reputation they have, you know, do they really deliver and are they able to really close on time? Just do some of that due diligence that you would do on any product. If you were buying a set of pans for your kitchen, you'd probably do more research than a lot of people do before they agree to sign up for a mortgage. So I would just encourage people to really do their due diligence and feel comfortable with the company that they're going to work with. All right, Joe, what do you think? That's a good interview, Dave. I, I like hearing what Stan had to say. Stan talks about the transfer of borrowed money, if that gets redirected, and he says he's seen that a couple of times. That doesn't affect the borrower directly. I'll bet it slows the process down. <laughs> I'll <laughs> yeah. bet that if you go to closing <laughs> and they say our money got redirected, that you don't go to closing that day. That it's going to be at no. least a couple of days before you get your house. Yeah, um, but that makes a bad day for everybody. Yeah, it does. It does. And if you think about you're the seller in that situation and that happens, when I bought my current house, I had to sell another house and I had to go from one settlement in the morning to the next settlement in the afternoon. Right, right. right. So if I was selling my house and the nice people who bought my my house had their mortgage redirected to some scammer and that held up the closing of my, the sale of my first house, I would not be able to close on the second house because I wouldn't have the money for closing. Right. You can you can trigger this sort of cascading set of events exactly. just by one going astray. 
Yeah. I like that Stan says that Atlantic Bay Mortgage will send out a letter after closing to help people stay aware of all the scams they're going to be up against. One of the hmm. biggest things you're going to have to start doing as soon as you, you know, when you get into a house, there's like about a month or two month delay before you have to start making mortgage payments because usually you make a partial mortgage payment at closing that will cover everything from the settlement date to the end of that month. And then you don't have to make a payment again until the beginning of the following month because your mortgage interest is paid in arrears. That's the difference between mortgage and rent. Rent is paid up front. Mortgage interest is paid in arrears. And Hmm. at least that's the way it was explained to me when I was selling real estate during my brief and failed sales career. Um, (laughs) Right. But <laughs> you shouldn't be considered an expert because of the because of the level of success you had in that career. Uh, actually, I, <laughs> I, I did okay. I did better than average. It just it just wasn't enough to live on. I um, see. <laughs> the interesting thing is that's a significant time lag. It's almost July. So let's say you're going to settlement on July seventh, uh, right? Yeah, you're yeah. going to make a partial payment for that mortgage in July. Then you're not going to have a mortgage payment again until September, right? September first mm. is when your first mortgage payment is probably going to be due. Mm-hmm. That is a long period of time for this information to be published and then for scammers to come out and go, hey, here's how you make your mortgage payments and send you to a scamming website where they redirect your money to them. Right, right. And here's your coupon book. <laughs> right. Here's your here's your coupon book. And, and the fact that this information is all public knowledge and gets published pretty quickly, you know, maybe there should be some kind of delay in releasing of that knowledge. There is a, a bureaucratic delay that it takes some period of time for that information to get out. But that's just because of the inertia of the process in publishing the information, right? Sure. Maybe there should be like a a 90 day delay that we, Hmm. you know, this information is public record and everybody has the right to see it, but maybe everybody doesn't have the right to see it for security's sake until 90 days after the settlement. Mm -hmm. Maybe that should Mm -hmm. be a new regulation that happens. I think that would be a good, a a good idea. Maybe there's some, somebody out there who has an idea why that wouldn't be a good idea. And I'm sure they will let us know if they do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on it. Yeah. I like that Stan talks about three ways that they protect their people with tech, process, and people. It's very important to understand that you're going to have to use all three of those. You're going to have to educate your people. You're going to have to have good processes in place, and you're going to have to have technology. Technology is never going to be the panacea for these kind of problems. Uh, It's just not going to be the case. I like Stan's attitude towards managing risk. You cannot cover everything that's going to happen to you. You cannot be perfectly secure. That's just not possible. Uh, but you can look at what works and use it and look at what doesn't work and get rid of it. And it seems to me that Stan is doing that. And it, he talks about a lot about remote closing. Personally, Dave, I don't know about you, but I would still want to go to a place and meet people and see checks changing hands for settlement on a house. Something as big as that, I think that's worth uh, me taking the time off work and going to a lawyer's office and having that happen. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, and and I have to say, you know, this 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 interview got me thinking about all of the the kind of hand waving we do right now when it comes to digital signatures, and and by digital signatures, I mean replacing your written signature with a digital version of that, right, you with know, an image, because, which is not what digital signatures are, right, um, and like I've had situations where you know uh, I'm signing up for something and and I have to sign, it's a it's a contract, and I'm doing everything online, and uh, they've uh, a window pops up and it says, choose the font that most resembles your handwriting and, <laughs> and, and sign your name in that font. And, and, yeah. and I'm like, well, okay, but that's not, it's not my signature. But no, it's not. 
I, I don't know how these kinda, are binding. Um, right, I, right. I'd and like I, and there must be a way. Maybe it's just not an issue. I mean, you know, in the old days, someone who was illiterate could just, you know, sign an X. And, right, yep. And that was that. So maybe it, maybe there's enough legacy from those days that, uh, that still carries through and it, it's all workable. It makes me raise my eyebrows. Yeah, if nothing else, I want to see at least somebody put pen to paper and then scan that and send it, sent it over and then sent the originals to follow up. There's always been a lot of confusion around digital signatures. When you say digital signatures, a lot of times people think of, of just a digitized image of their signature. And when I hear digital signature, I think that I'm cryptographically signing something with, with my right. private keys. And, and it's demonstrable that since I have control of my private keys – that anybody with my public key can say, yep, that's Joe's signature, digital signature. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you to Stan Holland from Atlantic Bay Mortgage uh, for joining us. Lots of good information there. Uh, We do appreciate it. And, of course, we want to thank all of you for listening. That is our show. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Fittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.